join us as we take a look behind the scenes with the independent musicians of Louisiana. Learn about upcoming projects before they drop. Experience the rich heritage of iconic venues and get first-hand accounts of exclusive events. Musicians are remarkable people. Get to know them, their struggles, and the inspiration for their art. NewOrleansMusicians.com is dedicated to uplifting the artists and providing them with the tools necessary to elevate their craft. We shine a spotlight on them, as well as highlight the music scene and educate everyone with our interviews, album reviews, and music scene news. This is NewOrleansMusicians.com. Yeah, so I grew up in a small town called Venice, Louisiana. Um, small fishing community. Most people know it as like sports, sportsman's paradise, right? Um, I had one older sister. Um, we were, uh, I like to say we were not quite sheltered as children, but uh, we were uh, very much each other's best friends growing up. We spent a lot of time just uh, with us and our family. Um, for musical influences growing up, my parents were, were uh, couldn't be farther apart from what they liked to listen to. My mom was uh, uh, big into like Barbra Streisand, um, some of the big band stuff, Frank Sinatra, things like that. Yeah. Uh, my dad was more, you know, he's a late 70s child, so he was into the Eagles and the Allman Brothers, um, uh, Boston, uh, Foghat, like bands like that. Um, which was a, a big, you know, those type of bands were a big part of my musical influence, obviously. Uh, Eagles being kind of one of the one of the main ones. Sure. Um, always particularly, um, you know, love the way that they were able to uh, translate uh, recorded performances into live performances. You know, something that we uh, always try to mimic with our stuff. You know, to, to put the the uh, the expectation on ourselves that it can be one and the same uh, sure. to an extent, right? That's a, that's a wide variety, though. I mean, you're covering all the bases between Streisand and anything else, I would say, you know. Do you ever find Streisand cre creeping into your um Sometimes, every now and then. When, when I hear it, it, it really is just kind of a nostalgia thing, you know. It reminds, sure. reminds me of, like, Sundays after church. We had, you know, you know the, in, the, in the early 90s, late 80s, you had these big, uh, huge stereo systems in your house that you sure. can now have on, you know, Stack your iPods. But every Sunday after church, you know, they would go through their little CD catalog and I would hear all that, you know, Celine Dion and all that stuff. So, uh, sure. so yeah, always brings me back to that. But, yeah, it, it creeps in every now and then. But it sounds like they were, they were music fans. They were strong fans of music. Absolutely. My mom's family is pretty musical. Mom was a, a, a choir leader, worship leader in a church that we went to. Okay. Uh, so uh, everything musical comes from, from her side of the family. Um, but I did prefer my dad's taste in music a little bit. He gravitated towards that. <laughs> yeah. Um, how did that steer you once you started your own career in music? Yeah, so I, I think that uh, whenever I was probably around 15 or 16 years old, I started experimenting with uh, uh, songwriting and, and uh, getting in a crowd of people who were big into music. And even though not all of them were great musicians, um, you know, we started to, to look at composing songs and what we would do if we were to write original songs and most of the stuff that we drew from was the stuff our dads listened to you know uh, I remember my friend Josh and I we recorded this uh, <laughs> you know the uh, these uh, the Fisher-Price uh, microphone thing yeah. we would go in there and we'd put these little uh, cassette tapes in there and put the scotch tape on top of them and uh, 
and we would uh, basically take songs on a different stereo, whether it be like a Beatles tape or something like that, and we would overdub our own lyrics and melodies on top of the stuff that you, sure. that you hear on the tapes. And so that's how it all started, but every, everything that we did um, was stuff that our, our, our dads kind of pulled into our lives. And, and the, funny, the funniest part about that is I've, on several occasions, taped over tapes that, that, that my dad didn't know I taped over yeah. and he would go and put his little cassette tape in the tape player and it'd be like Beatles Abbey Road and then it's all it's me on there surprise <laughs> yeah. yeah I think Fisher Price was a rite of passage for our generation yeah. into any sort of musical venture Absolutely, whatsoever man. yeah you know that's awesome um so I saw online that you do acoustic sets but you actually have a sizable band yeah so we do uh I mean it's either or kind of depending on the venue and the ask um Whenever uh, Jerry and I uh, recorded our first record together, Rust, which came out uh, April of 2021, mm -hmm. um, you know, there was, I don't think there was a real expectation at the time for us to actually, um, we didn't think anyway that we were going to play on it or tour on it. You know, it was really just sort of a, a side project. And uh, after we recorded it, you know, you got to think about this coming out of COVID, right? And, and people are starting to want to go back to bars and listen to music and stuff. So there was quite the push for you guys need to get out there and play it and play it, right? Sure. So uh, we did that initially as like an acoustic duo and we'd play the, the record and then, you know, covers and requests and stuff like that. And uh, I got, you know, I talked about it yesterday. I, I got kind of bored of it pretty quickly. Um, and so at some point, I'm not sure how the conversation started, but we started to add pieces here and there. You know, added a, a cajon player and brought in like a, a keyboard player. And then finally it was like, man, let's just, let's just do it. Let's just go all out. So, so you were integrating, you were integrating uh, new pieces into a, a performance of an album that was only recorded as a duo? So the album was recorded as a full band, but we only oh, okay. performed it as an acoustic duo initially. Gotcha. And, uh, and, and, you know, this, it's just, you know, you kind of, you want to hear the whole thing, right? So sure. we were able to, uh, at some point, you know, pull in some of the, uh, great musicians around this area, you know, and said, look, we want to, we want to pull this off as a full band. You know, you guys interested and, uh, you know, we found the right group of guys and, uh, and started playing and, and kind of touring on it sure. uh, as a full band. So you got a, a full-time solid lineup now. Absolutely. Of people. Yeah. Who's, who's playing what? Give a rundown for everybody. Uh, so Jerry's playing guitar, um, uh, guitar and vocals. Last uh, name? Jerry Martin. Martin, um, okay. Uh, Mark Kravanek, he's uh, from Homa, lives in New Orleans. He's a bass player. Um, our keyboard player, we kind of have a, a few that go in and out depending uh, you know, on the availability. But uh, Tillis Verdan plays keys with us. Uh, Brett Guillory, Teddy Baudouin, Travis Thibodeau, who's also the one of the producers on our record label, which is Red Stick Records. Uh, and our drummer is Tim Belanger, who's also here from HOMA. Um, on certain shows, we'll pull in a second guitarist, which is uh, Zach Sheremy. He's here from HOMA as well. Um, uh, just depends on the size of the show sure. and, and size of the band. You know, uh, we did the album release show in Lafayette for uh, this latest record. And... Um, it uh, you know we brought in horn section and everything so uh, depending on on the size of the show we've we've got kind of a lineup that we can call out yeah. uh, but the core band is myself Jerry Tim Belanger uh, and Mark Kravanek. I know that um, musicians feed off of the energy in the room when they're performing the crowd and and you know everybody's mood that night the band whether whatever. whatever. Um, 
say like for that time that you brought in the horn section or another time where someone might have been added that wasn't their last performance does it does it bring some sort of different energy does it feel different you yeah know what I mean? no totally it feels different adding that that horn section is kind of a the, the big one you know when we the last time we did it was a, a album release party which was early may um may 6th i believe and um you know a lot of the songs that we write uh, every song on our last record had had full horn sections um and so to be able to perform them that way uh with the actual horn lines as opposed to kind of you know transposing keyboard parts and things like that yeah um it's so much better and and just uh really is able to translate what we recorded into the live performance you know so i really like that so they were used on rust they were used uh for the recording of that yes and the person that played with us uh played uh tenor sax uh, alto sax with us at the um release party is the uh one of the horn arrangers for the original record so arranged some of the songs and also performed on some of the songs fell right in the place on stage i'm sure and, yeah yeah that's awesome uh how but you're still performing as a duo occasionally you're still doing acoustic sets yeah, I just, you know, it kind of flopped that flip-flop that now it's the exception rather than the rule, right? So normally we're in a full band environment and uh, and occasionally we'll do an acoustic show. Yeah. Uh, which actually I've grown to appreciate it more now that we don't do it quite as often. Uh, because, you know, there is a like a nakedness to it, you know, so it's pretty cool. Sure. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so I would say it's probably... Yeah, twenty five percent of the time we're doing acoustic shows. Yeah, I, I had seen your uh, upcoming show schedule, and I saw, you know, a couple, two, three, yeah. acoustic nights in there. But uh, so the rest is with a full band, Absolutely. and that's with the brass section and everything. Uh, not necessarily the brass section. Sometimes, sometimes, but but most times not. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, speaking about your your show lineup, I've seen many show announcements for uh, Homa, but you're also getting. Uh, to places like Mandeville, Golden Meadow, Baton Rouge, Thibodeau, New Orleans, um, and also appearances on YouTube channels. Um, are there any out-of-state appearances uh, right now? Uh, currently, I don't think we have anything on the books that's outside of Louisiana. Um, the places you named are kind of our, our real circle that we, we've, we're maintaining right now. You know, sure. I would say Homa is sort of like home base for us, right. uh, where our largest following is. Um, Lafayette probably right behind that and um, you know we, we generally stay particularly in that area. How did you enjoy New Orleans? You went to Appalachia, I saw two in the past probably year, Holland Wolf and uh, the Tasting Room. I'm yeah no that. I like it. Tasting Room we do a, a, an acoustic show there so uh, that's pretty cool um, you know it's uh, all we, we have a handful of songs that we play at every acoustic show but a lot of times that turns into like a request thing you know it's like can you play this can you play that so that's fun gives us a chance to be a little more versatile and uh, play songs we typically wouldn't play in a, yeah. in a full band environment. Howlin' Wolf was awesome, man. I hadn't played there since like uh, 2005, 2006. Um, and uh, my first time back there in years, even seeing the place. Mm -hmm. um, so that was pretty cool. I mean, I remember playing the Howlin' Wolf when it was where the Republic is now. Yeah, uh, you know, That's across right. the street, right? That's right. Um, but no, it was cool. Real cool environment. We played in the den, which is kind of the small room there, uh, intimate setting. Um, it was awesome, man. I really, really dug it. I've always enjoyed the crowd there. It's just uh, onto its own. Yeah, know? for sure. And they've Real got they've got their own kind of you know scene that goes there and kind of hangs out and just watches whatever's there. So I think that's cool. Yeah. Um, so 
I guess I wanted to move on to, uh, I guess, your, your online presence, uh, your presence with the fans, uh, not so much one-on-one, -on -one, but as much as online allows us to be. Um, all these appearances are obviously gaining new fans and followers online, um, and that's growing for you. I think you have over 2,000 right now, like on Facebook, say. Um, is, is it hard to maintain uh, a personal rapport as your fan base is growing, as your career is progressing, do you find it, because I mean, some people feel pressured to put content, like I, gotta, I have to have a post today or something. Do you yeah. know what I'm saying? Or, or I've got 50 comments and I haven't paid attention to one. Is it hard for you or do you find it, does it come naturally? Is it still at a pace that you feel comfortable with? Yeah, no, I think it's manageable now. I mean, I have, uh, uh, the, the label manages my, um, Deanna, my manager, she manages the social media. Um, so the post, most of that stuff, you know, we do it collaboratively sure. as far as the content that's being posted. Yeah. But I'm engaged in it every day. So, yeah. you know, I, I try to reply back to people as soon as they, they post. I mean, <clears throat> we've got, I don't know, 10,000 or so followers on Instagram. Um, and so, you know, sometimes I can get kind of out of hand. Sure. But I, I, I watch it every day. So if I see something and somebody's commenting on something, you know, I try to make sure I send a personal reply back and things like that. So it's manageable yeah. at this point. You know, the people that, that have these crazy millions of followers. I don't know how they do. I mean, Me obviously they've got teams of people. But, <laughs> they probably have a um, team behind them. Yeah. You know? But I mean, we're at the point now where it's it's still personal. So whenever you're sending a message or replying or commenting on something, it's, it's me you're talking to, right? Sure. Uh, I also saw that you do, sometimes you'll, you'll sit down in front of the camera and just kind of play the guitar and sing a little bit. And I think that helps a lot too. That's intimate, that's personal. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I think, think that's, that's nice. just to create, you know, you want it to be your social media. I think it, it's it's cooler when it's personal and when people uh, can see you in sort of a stripped down type of atmosphere, something that they typically wouldn't see if they came saw me live, right? Yeah, um, definitely. So I think that that's cool. And so I I, I don't do those as often as I'd like, but um, uh, you know, Jerry and I, man, for like in 2020, we did like 30. We did this thing was called a. Uh, today's episodes of last night's shenanigans mm -hmm. and we for 30 straight days in the month of april i think it's 2020 right yeah 2020? Yeah, right after yeah. The pandemic. we did well, the we recorded a song like that every day for 30 days and it was like full all, full request so we recorded one and it's like what do you want to hear next and we'd read the comments and then we record another we did it every day we did it remotely also so it wasn't just a live thing it was multi-track right oh, okay so that's I, cool and sometimes it was full band i'd play every instrument send it to him he would video himself on his iPhone, send me the tracks. I would make an actual video, yeah. track it. That's a lot. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> when, it, when it was over, I was like, thank God, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> initially, we're like, you know, 14 days to flatten the curve. Let's just do a video every day. You know, it's helping people, it's giving them something to do. Yeah. And we got to a month, I was like, what the hell? It's just gonna continue, and then we, we had to stop. I did 41 videos in 30 days. Yeah, it was for you, man. It was wild. And you know what's funny? I, I mean, I don't know how, how y'all feel about it, but sometimes in the beginning, when I set a goal for myself, a lot of factors are arbitrary. Like, I, I don't have any metric to base it off of. I'm like, you know what? I think I could do 200. And then I'm not going to stop until I do 200, you know, right. even if every knuckle is bloody. Like, yeah. I, I have yeah. to, you know? But we, that, when we did that, we had, we had a conversation at some point because at first we were just doing it. 
yeah. seven or eight or nine days in a row and at some point we like got on the phone i was like okay we're gonna like establish an ending point to this or is this gonna keep going it's like how about 30 days i'm like yep that's good with me 30 days yeah i'll tell you what that's a noble effort because i feel your pain as far as editing goes yeah it was it, i mean there's many nights where one o'clock in the morning we're talking to each other and it's uh, get home in the afternoon. It's like, oh man, we gotta do a song again. Got to. Yeah. <laughs> got to. Yeah. Got to. Yeah. I mean, I was four or five songs ahead, you know. And we we had collaborative things where I was using different musicians. Mm-hmm. So people are sending me tracks to click, and it was all done on iPhones. Yeah. There was no. But that's fantastic too that you were able yeah. to to kind of, I guess, muster a, 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 a gather a few people that were supportive enough to. You know, keep that pace with you because yeah, it's kind of hectic. You know, was, I'm sure you weren't given much notice, and yeah. it's all remote. And, yeah. you know. It was really cool, and it really was. I think the genesis of of us starting to re- record music together, uh, as far as the Russ record and all of this stuff, um, because it was you know before that you know sporadically we'd have stuff online, but when we started that, everybody's like, "Yo, you guys need to write a record. Y'all need to put out a record. Y'all need to go play somewhere." You know, like all that. So. Um, so that was really sort of what kind of sparked it all. That's awesome. Yeah. Inspiration and acumen, man. You pick that up when you're under pressure, even if you put the, the rules on yourself, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And you learn a lot in the process. I think that's really cool. Um, I wanted to also touch on your, your signing with Red Stick, because uh, that's fairly recent, and I don't know if a lot of people out there know about it. Um, how did it come about? Um, you know, it, whatever you could tell me about uh, Red Stick, how it's been since you've been there. Yeah, it's, it's, so it's it's been great, man. So uh, the original record we recorded was Rust. That was recorded at Audio Smith Studios in Prairieville. Uh-huh. Um, the owner of that studio, his name's Robbie Smith. Um, and I think maybe three to six months after we finished recording that, you know, he reached out to me and, and said that he and some partners were getting together and going to finance this this label out of Baton Rouge. And this is the now producer, one of the now producers for Red Stick? Correct. correct? And one of the owners. Okay. Um, and so once the label got kicked off, they signed, uh, their first signing was, was a guy named J.P. Bourgeois, who's out of, I guess, Raceland. Um, and then right around that time, uh, they reached out to me and said, hey, what do you think about... Um, you know, sign a recording contract with us and let's start making some records together. And uh, it was, I mean, it's a no-brainer for me. I, I made the last record with them. Um, I mean, they, the only difference now versus then is, uh, you know, they've brought in some other production talent. So they've got uh, Travis uh, Thibodeau, who was uh, the touring uh, keyboard player for Journey for a while. Um, he wrote Take My Hand, that Wayne Toop song that's really famous. So yeah. he's been around, you know, around the block for a while. So they brought him in um, to help with some of the in-studio producing. Um, and then they moved a lot of the recording out of Audio Smith uh, into uh, which where we're at now, Brignac Lane Studios in Santa Mar. Saw that. Um, and I think that's just so that they could focus more on, you know, sort of the overall engineering and the, the label itself versus the tedious part of, you know, being in the studio recording and mixing all day long. Sure. So uh, they've outsourced a, a, some of the stuff, but Robbie's still heavily involved uh, in all the post-production uh, aspects of it. So, so yeah, it was a pretty easy transition because we had already worked with him before. So when they came to us about the recording contract, it was, it was kind of a no-brainer, you know. Sure. Uh, not only that, I, I would think that being from where we are from, um, it becomes kind of important to get a local in on it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, because for sure. Because everything that comes out of here has got the sound 
it's unmistakable. You could be displaced in Maine and hear something from Louisiana and put your ear right to it and say, right. that came from somewhere around well, here. Well, another cool thing about it is it's it's like a circle of people that that um, are, are colleagues that work together all the time. And so if you need, like when we record in Brian's studio in Santa Mar, you know, he's 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 in that that click with like all of those guys from from this area you know the sunny landreth and um uh, you know Waylon thibodeau and like all these people right sure. so if you needed anything to bring in a, a cello player or bring in an accordion i mean they they got the people they've got the list you know it's like mm -hmm. I, i'd like to add this all right well i'll make this call and bring him here he'll be here tomorrow we'll make it happen I, I was gonna add that there's a song where there's a string section we didn't keep with a keyboard and it sounds okay but you're missing the bow in the string. Sure. You know, there's that sound. So, Ryan's like, I know this guy. Made the call, and that's yeah. You know, that's happening soon. But without that Brian connection, that wouldn't have happened. We would no, not known what to do. Right. Yeah, that's where I was moving to next. Uh, what kind of an impact it's had on you, uh, professionally and personally? I would imagine, like you mentioned, Waylon uh, Thibodeau and, and a few other people. Um, I mean, you're meeting you're meeting people that you probably already listened to coming up. So, I mean, that's got to be that's got to be kind of cool. Yeah, right? no, and, absolutely, you know, man. These folks like this. I mean, even Jerry. I mean, you're talking about like people that were like, you know, musical heroes that are now like sitting in the in the room with me recording, you know, our own music. So, I mean, that's super cool, right? To to have them in there, to have them recording on your record, absolutely uh, having input and you know telling you something's great or that you can do something better. You know, it's just. Uh, creates a, a, a camaraderie in the room as well as just you know, the confidence that we can we can pull it off you know so I, I think it's been it's been great and you know our circle of musician friends has certainly grown and uh, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited about what we're doing right now I bet I bet um, I think it works both ways too because if you have somebody great that's gonna be on your track you know it makes you seem that much greater when you put out your final product, but you also realize inside yourself, not saying anything to anybody else, I better, I better step up to bat. Right. You know, yeah, absolutely. I really yeah. gotta bring. This has gotta know. be pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so that's cool. Um, and also, a uh, little side note: your manager, Deanna Scott. Uh, you, okay? So you decide to work with her, or y'all decide to work together, but then Red Stick comes into the picture afterwards. And then Red Stick picks up both of you. Yeah. How so did, how did that work? So this is, so it was strange how that worked. Yeah. Um, so Deanna and I, uh, we've been working together since uh, I guess the first record around that time. Which was when? Uh, it was April twenty twenty one. Okay. Something like that. Um, and uh, so she manages all of my booking, social media, um, all the marketing, um, basically my my entire work life and most of my personal life. Um, and so uh, whenever we did the deal with Red Stick, I remember Robbie called me one day and uh, they needed that in their group, you know, somebody to, to push all their social media stuff out and, you know, just, they, they, these guys, this marketing aspect of their business, I mean, they had no experience in that, you know. So uh, Robbie called me one day and said, man, what do you think about me uh, bringing Deanna on as a, a partner in the label? And to do the marketing and promotion and all that stuff. And I was like, yeah, I think it's perfect. Yeah. And uh, is there will be any conflict for you? I'm like, no, if anything, it'll make it things easier for me. You know? So um, that was that was basically how, how it happened. And, and then they reached, they, they got with each other and figured out the, the details of it all. But uh, but yeah, it, it, it all kind of sort of happened near the same time. Yeah. 
did I did I get that order right though? Uh, you were first with her, and then how did they how did they find you? They found you and approached you, or she pitched you to them? No, no. no. Just so out of curiosity. So the, the order of things was. Uh, we recorded the first record at Audiosmith, which is owned by Robbie Smith. Okay, so that's how he learned of you. Correct. Okay. And then Robbie Smith was well, he's friends with Jerry already. Yeah, uh, yeah, Robbie's mixed a few records that I've been involved in, so Robbie and I go way back. Okay. So we've worked together a lot. Okay. And when we were recording, going to record this record, I, I suggested Robbie. He was interested, so that that was the connection. Yeah. So we recorded the first record. They started the label. Reached out to us about the recording contract. And then we signed with them, and then they signed Deanna after that. Yeah. I think that was the sequence of events. Am I right about this? Uh, yeah. I don't see how it yeah. couldn't have happened, really, <laughs> yeah. looking back on it, yeah. even though it's kind of confusing, yeah. you know? Yeah. That's funny. Hey, everybody. Normally in the middle of podcasts, they give you a bunch of advertisements. But on the NewOrleansMusicians.com podcast, we like to shout out new members. Today we have for you a band by the name of Totem. They're a sludge, post-rock, psychedelic, heavy rock band, and their members are from Shreveport, St. Bernard, and New Orleans. They're inspired by bands like Clutch, The Melvins, Down, Zeppelin and Sabbath, Boris, and Neurosis, to name a few. When asked what single factor played the biggest role in their decision to pursue a career in music, Gage, their drummer, said that he found a brotherhood in music. Matt, on bass and vocals, answered, Music is the art of conveying emotion in a way that isn't possible through language. It is an ancient and primal practice that must be praised and revered. This band is very literally our totem to worshiping this otherworldly power. His biggest factor, to put it simply, is the love of music and the connection that comes from the love of music. They currently gig all over New Orleans. And on October 8th, they're releasing their EP with a show at Poor Boys on St. Bernard. Look out for details on that on Facebook at Totem504 or Instagram at Totem underscore 504. And here's an example of their work. So, okay, this is something else I wanted to talk to you about. Um, something came across my desk this morning. It was, it was somebody talking to me about how um, <clears throat> sometimes musicians or bands are charged to perform at certain events. <clears throat> and I know it sounds ludicrous, but um, I've seen it myself. This, this person is in a band that they gig a lot in New Orleans, and... He's seen it at four different places. He named them, but he's like, please don't include my name of the four places. And I, you know, I, I don't wish to, but it's something that I'm going to eventually talk about. And, but it would be kind of uh, centered around New Orleans because that's the experience that I've had. Um, is there anything like that that you've ever run into out here? And this would be not just uh, a venue per se, like a, a bar or a uh, music hall. Um, my particular experience was at uh, a convention 
and it was it was a music based convention, music industry based convention. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen promoters that uh, I mean I thought we were on the same page, but they would have talent shows. They were talent scouts, but they would have talent shows just to be able to make it easy for them to scout, and they would charge the bands as well as whatever the door was, and they're taking both parts. So I was wondering, you know, um, just in any context, have you have you run into that in your profession? I haven't career? seen it at uh, venues specifically. Um, you know, I know a lot of venues that kind of do this thing where it's like, we'll give you the room. You know, the venue is yours. Uh -huh. We're not going to pay you, but you sell your own tickets and whatever you do, you do. Okay, right? so, you, so you're I've working for the door. Basically, yeah. Okay. So I've seen that. Um, now, I have heard of people paying to go on tour, you know, like like these Nashville acts that will go on tour. And, and, you know, you got some young up-and-comer that wants to go on tour with a Rascal Flats or whatever, like as sure. far as an example. And, you know, and, and they'll go pay the the uh, the agent for that band and you know, whatever amount of money to let them open up for them on tour. I've seen that happen a lot. Yeah, I've been involved. Yeah, yeah. That, I think that's 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 probably more normal than you would think, um, especially for like an opener opener. Um, but no, as far as now, I do know that uh, you know we've done and I've done it before, like in a, a previous band, um, like at, uh, LAFF Louisiana Affairs and Festivals. Okay, you know they put on a big convention every year, and and in order to have a chance to perform at this convention, which is basically like. What you're doing at this convention is you're performing in front of the people that run all these fairs and festivals in Louisiana. Right. For the and, chance and, to and they like you, they book you for the fair. Like ten events or whatever. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And so in order to be part of that, you have to pay to be a member of LAFF, right? Which is not a whole lot of money. So I have seen that. So there's probably stuff like that. But as far yeah. as like going to a venue and say, I'm going to give you a thousand bucks and let me play here. Yeah. Nah, not me. I wouldn't do it. So. Well, that was going to be my next question. I mean, I, I, I'm sure we all feel the same way about it. But I mean, some people would consider it based on the opportunity they, they might be on the fence about it yeah. at the very least but it, I, it did yeah. used to go on in even in New Orleans like if you'd have like a I, I won't name any names but let's say a big band comes to House of Blues and, and you got a band that you feel like would be a good opener I mean I've seen people like go up to you know promoters and say hey I'll I'll give you money to let me open up for X yeah. right, the night he plays here. That's the no, third band. Uh, yeah, that's the third band, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's no and, shame in it. It's no. a shame that it exists, but there's no shame in someone wanting yeah. success that Well, it's also you know. no different than, than advertising yourself on, on online, right? Paying to boost a post for it's 500 a, it's bucks. Marketing it's marketing like, dollars. Yeah. yeah, it's like instead of paying for this Facebook post, I'll give $500 to this talent coordinator and go open up for Gary Clark Jr. You know, yeah. so <clears throat> I don't see... Um, I don't see anything particularly, you know, wrong with that aspect of it. But uh, but yeah, I think in, in in many ways, you know, you've got to you've got to pay to to play, you know. So right, well, I'm glad I'm glad I asked you that question though because I was just going to tear it apart in an article upcoming. But um, no, I mean, I, I, I can see where I, I, I can see the other side of the yeah. fence. Yeah. But I, what would if you gave me like a famous? <clears throat> let's you know. I'm, Again, I don't want to name any venues because I don't want to shun anyone. But right. if you pick a venue and you think this is a venue with a lot of clout, and they expect a band to pay them to play there, no, no I don't. To me, that ain't happening. Um, not saying it doesn't exist, but I think that's that's pretty weird. So I don't. I wouldn't be part of that. But yeah, I don't think that's a good faith practice. To say yes, no, no. <laughs> you know? I'm all about. You know, I, I talked to a buddy of mine about this last two weekends ago, who's trying to put on shows in New Orleans, and uh, you know, he was asking me about door deals versus guarantees and all this stuff and you know my, my personal uh 
you know, philosophy behind it is it, it happens in different ways, and some people are cool with different things, and that's all well and good. But to me, the shows always work better if both parties have skin in the game. You know, he's a promoter. You said he's a venue owner. Oh, okay. Yeah, but if both parties have something to lose and something to gain, yeah, then I think it works better because if if you're guaranteeing me dollars, um, you know, versus a door or versus some ticket sales or something. And that means that you're on the hook for some of this, so you're going to help me promote it. And, Absolutely. You know, all that stuff. But if, if it's just like, hey, I'm going to pay you the door, or you get all the tickets, yeah. then you don't really care. You know, it's just, you know, as long as people are in here buying drinks or whatever. You know, so I think, it's, uh, I think, I think both parties need to have something to gain and something to lose. You know? Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to remember the exact wording, but I, I think the general premise behind a, a business deal, a good business deal, is where both parties walk away feeling like they gained something right. from the transaction. Yeah. And I, I, can't, I, I can't feel that way about an artist that pays uh, to play, yeah. even if it's not his livelihood. I, I think uh, the talent is the draw, and the draw shouldn't have to pay because it's the draw, <laughs> you yeah. know? It's generating something by just simply being the talent, you know yeah. what I'm saying? And maybe it's some kind of long-term philosophy or plan for that particular artist, you know, yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't judge him on it, but it, I, yeah, I couldn't see that being part of my, my five-year plan, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Successful. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, earlier I had mentioned uh, a lot of places that you had played, um, and so you've played both venues and festivals, mm -hmm. both different atmospheres completely mm -hmm. um of the amalgamation of all of these things what's your favorite is it a small room is it a big field during the day you know what's your favorite um man festivals are hard to beat dude. you know it's um it, it's it's built-in crowds it's people excited to hear music um you know they're there for that atmosphere um you know the the big uh, music venue things. I also love Grouse from Varsity. Uh, you know, th those things are, are awesome as well because it's it's ticket sale events. So people that came bought tickets. They wanted to be there. You know, it's engaged crowds. Sure. Um, the thing that I hate, the, well, I hate, but the thing I like the least is, uh, you know, whenever you are, um, I, I, for lack of better terms, like background music, right? It's like, hey, I got this. A restaurant and we have live music on Wednesdays. Y'all want to come do an acoustic show, but hey, turn it down a lot because I right. want patrons to be like blown out by all this music. Is that a right? situation that you're in sometimes with the acoustic performances? Uh, rarely. You know, I try to figure out ways or, or, or to not do those type of gigs, but every sure. once in a while, it happens. It happens. Yeah. Is it? Does it pair with? Does the instance pair with? certain places certain atmospheres or uh, yeah i mean there's certain venues that it's just, guess, that's just part of the deal yeah know? i would guess that, that you know they attract a certain customer base and those customers yeah and then they, they want some music going on while they're talking but you know it's not they're not there to see you right yeah uh that's just part of the ambiance of the this place that we are you know so yeah those a lot less interesting gigs for me you know just when you get the videos and you know say hey i took a video y'all doing this song last night and all you hear is people talking in the background, you know? <laughs> There's nights where, as an acoustic duo, you're struggling to even hear yourself. Yeah. And it takes everything in me to not just say, can everybody just shut? Yeah. <laughs> Which I kind of have. Yeah. Well, I mean, keep, keep a megaphone for your last show, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Tell them how you really feel. There's certain people like that, they, they, uh, that, like my wife can go to sleep with the TV on or somebody can put music on while they're studying or something. I, I'm just the complete opposite. I can't. If there's music playing, 
I got 50 questions about it. I want to know what comes next. I never heard it before, and it sounds like this. And I wonder if this guy's in that band, yeah. or you know, I can't do it. I can't do it. But I, I guess uh, there, there's some people that are of the school of, of music is life, and and um, then there's everybody else. I don't know. You know, um, I had uh, I had interviewed a band yesterday, and I mispronounced their name as soon as we started rolling camera. Poisson Rouge. Mm -hmm. um, so through them, there was an emphasis placed on carrying forth their identity and their heritage as Cajuns. Um, does this cross your mind? Does it ever come through your microphone? Is it something that you uh, intentionally delve into, or does it just is it just a part of you? Like a not so much, let's say Cajun, but your heritage. Cajun was theirs. Um, does your heritage come through? in your music and is it intentional or is it implied is it just coming natural yeah i think it's uh i think it's probably unintentional probably in the music um but you know everybody from this part of the world you know down the bayou and all this area you know it it certainly comes through in, in conversations and in the you know when we're being social before and after shows and, sure. and interviews and things like that so i think it's widely known and we even joke about it on stage you know about uh you know the leeville og and uh, i'm from venice louisiana so people know that you know we're you know cajuns at heart you know so i uh i think uh probably less so in like the recording of our music but certainly whenever you're hanging out with us you know yeah but yeah no i think it's a certainly an unintentional you know i bring it up uh and not so much to like label you as a cajun it was it was their their cross to bear or their badge yeah. you know it was something that they mentioned but it just brought to mind heritage in general and like i think before we started recording maybe um music that comes from this region has a certain sound to it unto itself and i think that's got a lot to do with um our own heritage and the influences that that kind of shaped this this our version of civilization, I yeah. guess, you know what I'm saying? And I, I feel like, um, you know, musicians in general, uh, just like you absorbed music from your mother and father when you were growing up, and some of it came out in later years, you know, uh, I feel like some of, some of our heritage comes through, some of our customs come through, and uh, like we said, if, you, if I was in a different part of the world and I heard something that was from a southern region, maybe even Louisiana, I might be able to put my finger on it and be like, that sounds like the music that came from where I grew up, right. you know, and uh, I value it, you know what I'm saying? Um, I think it's unique, and I was going to ask, you know, if it comes through in your music, any, in your opinion, and um, if you felt like it did, do you feel like it brings, it helps you to bring something different or put something different back out into uh, this musical landscape because, uh, you know, we're dealing with a, a global industry, you yeah. know what I'm saying? So I was just kind of curious if uh, if it had any influence on your end product, I guess. Yeah, like I said, I, th I think that certainly the you know the musicians that we're accustomed to working with are you know are part of this atmosphere and this environment and this culture. Uh, I think end product just because of the type of music that we're doing is probably a little bit less of that in, in what you hear. Uh -huh. um, you know, because it's not uh, I would say traditional you know, like Cajun, Zydeco, you know, that type of genre. Right, right. You know, right. we're sort of outside that bubble. Yeah. Um, but you know what? If, if somebody came to me and pointed a finger at it and said, that sounds like it was recorded in Louisiana, I wouldn't mind, you know. Well, you know, <laughs> and uh, I'll say you first. Describe to everyone 
h how you would say categorize your music. And I hate I hate to ask anybody that because it's a real pain in the ass question. You know, you feel like you're being pigeonholed, mm -hmm. and and people are like I'm these 15 different things. You know, and you could be part of all 15 of those things. But just for anybody that hasn't heard you, you know, maybe uh, describe to them what kind of music. You're right. Yeah, I think, you know, from record to record is going to be a little bit different. I think first record was, was like a, uh, a mixture between country blues and contemporary R&B. Okay. Um, and I think this next record is going to be a little bit more on the, uh, you know, pop side of, of things. Uh, you're still going to have a, a lot of the feel of that contemporary R&B stuff from the first record. Um, but a little bit more, a little bit, a little bit heavier on the pop side of, of music. Um, for this this next go round, and intentionally, you know, I wanted to uh, when we do the each record, I want them kind of to to be signature uh, to, to be ours, right? Sure. To have our signature on it, um, but to also kind of for one to be different from the other, um, and not so drastically where it sounds like completely different people. But uh, but no, I think uh, you know we did it purposefully that way. You know, first record was uh, really bluesy, uh, really kind of. Uh, um, a uh, lot of country feel in the melodies, uh, yeah. but the big horn sections in every song, um, and in this record, probably less of the big horn arrangements. Um, you know, more of uh, uh, synth drums and loops and things like that that we didn't experiment with a whole lot in the first record. So okay. I think uh, I think it'll 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 come out once once it's complete as uh, a little bit different sound than the first one. So for me, as the person who writes the music, the way this starts, it starts with a lyrical idea and a story and melody which to me drives the direction. Okay. So the first record had its own thing. This one has a completely different thing. This record is an entire story. And I knew the story going in. We had those conversations. I knew the lyrics. So that steered direction. Mm -hmm. So that kind of drove the melodic content, the chord structures. And as we're moving to the third record, I kind of know what it's going to be. So I'm already starting to think this is going to be more of a party record. Mm -hmm. More up tempo, more dancey. So that kind of drives, I think, musically where we go. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny when you think about, uh, let's say, the, the intended mood of a record or the, the intended um, genres, as we were talking about, of a record. Um, certain instruments are um, as plied as, implied as necessities, and others are okay, but not so much, and then some are mm -hmm. absolutely not. Like, you, you expect to see, or hear, rather, um, certain instruments I would believe in you know a stupid example is if we're listening to the symphony or something very moody it's probably going to have some strings in it but I mean if it's up tempo maybe not unless we're getting to a bridge or something you know what I'm saying and yeah they, they all kind of find their own way into this process so um, that'll be interesting to hear because uh, throughout the different albums if you're changing up what genre you would say it goes into then you're going to have different lineups moving from album to album yeah no Dif for sure different it, people contributing now. on different instruments yeah no for sure different people I mean, we're calling on different people now just based on what uh, we're trying to get the end product to be and who we think would be better suited for this particular type of style or song or whatever right? sure great point because moving forward we've already reached out to new collaborators on the next record where we're kind of branching away from the people we work with now mm -hmm. to someone who's more i would say electronic driven who understands the software more who's so our next collaborator is going to be someone who's kind of out of our circle now but i know where we kind of want to go and that guy has a skill set that i don't have 
to find these people? To find the sound. Okay. To, to more MIDI, more dance driven, more. So it's like an interior designer for your record. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, so I kind of know where I think we're going next. Yeah. And I don't have that skill set, but this guy does. Still in all though, I mean, delegation, you sound like you know what you're doing already and you're not even there yet, so. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, in closing, what is in the near future for you and um, professionally, and also further down the line? I know that in the near future, um, I don't know how much has changed with your intent because recently you've made some big changes um, being signed to a label, you know, um, and taking on a manager and. and um, I was curious how, how that's gonna impact in your future. What do you what do you think it's gonna look like? Yeah, I mean in the in the immediate future, we're uh, we're wrapping up the second record, uh, which is called The Reason Why. We released the first two tracks from that record in May. Mm-hmm. Um, we're probably uh, we're getting f- mixes back now. We're 75, 80% done with that one. Intention is to release that around the end of next month. Okay. Um, probably after that. Uh, something we've been kicking around is whenever we um, when we recorded the pre-production demos for that record um, we we put some emphasis on having um, better demos than we had for the first one you know we, we did some rough cuts for the first one sent them to the musicians say here's the general songs learn them and then we'll go in the studio and record them right uh, but for this one we put a little more emphasis on getting good guitar tracks good vocal tracks and it turned out that I really liked them all and so I think what we're going to do is, after the f- record is released, probably early next year, we'll release the record again, all acoustic. Um, and that's sort of like a double release, you know, on the same, mm-hmm. same song, same order, just doing it, just he and I, uh, sort of a stripped down version of, of that same record. Um, and then, you know, hopefully by this time next year, we'll be talking about record number three. So, um, you know, we're, already, like you said, we're already working on that now. Uh, and in the middle time, I mean, we're going to keep touring, keep playing. Um, you know, I don't see us slowing down on that, you know, at all. I think we did 100 shows this year. 100 shows. Yeah, yeah I can tell you you're a busy guy, yeah. to say the least. So, yeah, uh, so yeah I mean, I think uh, we'll be right around that probably for next year as well. Um, so we'll just keep keep grinding it out, man. Um, and biggest thing for us is and the what I enjoy most about all of this is just writing. Um, and you know my my time with Jerry in the studio writing songs is is really what it's all about for me. So uh, as long as we can continue to do that and support that with shows where we can, I think that's a short term short term plan. You know. Sure. So uh, certainly excited about next year for sure. Uh, just out of curiosity, what happened with the previous album that caused you to want to write or to record uh, better? Example tracks for the uh, people to play. Um, well, uh, so one thing was whenever this is there's a long amount of time that elapsed time that goes from when you record the pre-productions to the time you get in the studio. Okay. And start recording. Uh-huh. And so I had to listen to those pre-production tracks, you know, over and over again until we went and redid them. And there was just parts of them that it just like stuck in my craw. You know, it's like, oh god, I can't believe I did that. And uh, I had to hear it so many times throughout the process, the scratch vocals, what we call it. Yeah. And uh, I, uh, I was like, you know what? 
I'm not listening to that again for six months. So I was like, when we go do these <laughs> pre-productions, like they're gonna sound good. Yeah. And uh, he's like, all right. So we went to the studio and I made sure that they were, you know, something I could live with. Like if, if those vocals were on the record, I would be fine with it. Um, and so, but then once I heard it with just me and him, I was like, man, this is actually pretty good stuff, yeah. you know? So, oh, that's funny. so yeah, that was it. It's just, uh, just because of the, the cringiness of like hitting a bad note here that I didn't go fix. Cause I was like, it doesn't matter. No one's going to hear this, but I had to hear it over and over <laughs> and over and over again. So, okay. yeah. Um, also, uh, it seems as though y'all really enjoy doing, uh, the stripped down acoustic versions of your albums, um, getting out and performing them. Uh, what are you gonna do after this next album comes out? And there's so much, there's so much synthesis involved, synthesizers involved. Yeah, I mean, we still. Uh, I think that would probably be a better question for the next record because I think it's gonna be a little bit more um, electronic uh, than than yeah, this that's one. What that's what I'm yeah. saying. He, he yeah. said he was he was yeah. getting somebody else to help. So even pick some even this one is a little more than the last one. So, but it still can be done on guitar and vocals. But yeah, I mean, I think it's something we've got to. We got to probably figure out, you know, we may, we may have to bring in uh, when we do these acoustic shows, like some kind of MIDI player, keyboardist or something to uh, yeah. to try to replicate it, it in, in a scaled down environment without the big production of everything. So uh, haven't really thought that through yet, but that is a good question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We can edit that out. Bro. Yeah. Cool. We, uh, <laughs> we do like that 21 Pilots thing, you know. Oh, just a laptop? <laughs> yeah, just a laptop. Yeah. <laughs> No, no, that's cool. I, that's, that's you can leave it. I like that. Um, I think uh, it's something we certainly need to figure out. Sure. All right. I, I think that's about it, man. Unless you got something to add, um, I, I did. You know, I take that back. Uh, I did want to mention that you do have your own website. Maybe you could tell them where to find that because you've got music and merch on there. Yeah. So the website is uh, uh, com, I think. M J D A R D A R. Yeah, M J D A R D A R. Um, uh, Instagram at M J D A R Music. Facebook the same. And uh, if you go to the website, typically the the concert schedule is updated. Um, but most of our kind of live stuff is done on social media every day. So yeah, week to week, month to month, we're posting where we are. So. Sure. All right, cool. I think that's it, fellas. Appreciate it. Thanks, man. Appreciate yes, it. Sir. Absolutely. Thanks. Appreciate it. Hey, this is Levi from Misled, Southern Brutality in 1016. Look, man, we all start off as jam bands. We get together, we push our souls all throughout the speakers, man. Simple as that. The connections that we form with our crowds and followers is nothing like any other. We'd love to have you back. Click that old button, show your support, or you can check us out at Buy Me a Coffee. Black 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 that's buy me a coffee backslash New Orleans Music. I said buy me a coffee backslash New Orleans Music. I have spoken. Yeah, 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 yeah.